Over history, you would have heard, uh, maybe you would have encountered kind of sayings of no king but Jesus. Have any of you ever heard that phrase, no king but Jesus? Maybe you don't know the context, but it's a familiar phrase, no king but Jesus. Um, it's turned up a few times in history. Maybe the apostles were the first ones to, to say it when they were, the Romans thought that some of the apostles were maybe atheists because they wouldn't worship Caesar as God. And um, they told the apostles they need to stop sharing this news that they're sharing about Jesus. And they said, we, we will not obey you. We will obey God only. No king but Jesus. Uh, Caesar's not our, our king. But it's kind of been a, a thing that's happened all throughout history, this kind of declaration of no king but Jesus. In the late uh, mid-1600s, the Scottish Presbyterians um, stood up against King, uh, king Charles. And I think... What King Charles was trying to do was anglicize this, the Presbyterian church in Scotland. And they got up and said, uh, we have no king but Jesus. And, and that was their kind of statement of separation of church and state. And we're going to continue serving Jesus and you won't tell us what to do. Um, in, in early America, when they were still, America was still getting founded as a nation, um, and there was this kind of break from England... Uh, there's, there's these kinds of statements as well. One governor writes to um, King George, I believe it is, and says, if you ask these people, um, if you ask these people who their master is, they will reply, we have no governor but God and no king but Jesus. That's quite a statement, right? Um, it's, it's not just a statement of faith. It's a, it's, it's, it's a political statement against England. We have no governor but God. We have no king but uh, Jesus. Um, and this happened throughout. One of the, one of the um, a, a British military person came and stood with the army behind him uh, and said to them, you know, put down your weapons uh, and accept your king. And they replied, I think it was Reverend Jonas replied to uh, them, we shall not, we have no king but Jesus. Um, so this carries on through history, even recently with uh, restrictions. And I want to be careful because the closer you get to history, the more prickly a comment might make. I'm not trying to make a prickly comment, just observing something. Um, that even as governments kind of put mandates and restrictions on gatherings and groups of people coming together, there were some churches who kind of made the same statement. We have no, no governor but God, no king but England. Uh, not England, but Jesus. <laughs> no king but Jesus. And we will not stop gathering together. We will not forsake the gathering of believers. And they continued to meet on Sundays, kind of saying the state has no right to decide what happens. Um, so there's, throughout history, there's these kind of statements made. Um, and what I think we're going to find in this text is uh, three things about Jesus. Jesus is the king you need. Jesus is not the king you want. And Jesus is more than you ever imagined. Jesus is the king you need. Jesus is not the king you want, and Jesus is more than you ever imagined. All right, Jesus is the king you need. We find Jesus um, on his way into Jerusalem, and this crowd is gathered around him, and they start singing this song. They're saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is high praise. Can you imagine this crowd of hundreds and thousands of people walking Jesus into Jerusalem, yelling and screaming and singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is quite amazing because at this exact time in uh, Israel's calendar, 
they are working through Psalms 113 to 118. And this is a line that comes out of Psalm 118. It's 118 verse 6. It says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They've just sung it over Passover or said it or prayed it or repeated it. This is fresh in their minds. They've memorized it every single year. They go through this text at Passover uh, at this time. And, but for the first time in their history, they're now applying this text to a person. They say, blessed is, uh, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They're no longer singing the Halal. They're no longer saying it just in general over their feast. They're pointing at Jesus and they're saying, He is the King. He is Psalm 118.26. He's the one we've been waiting for. This is the King we've waited hundreds of years for. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine what it felt like? If your people have been waiting hundreds of years... For the promised king prophesied who's going to bring peace to your people. And here he's, he's standing right in front of you. And you believe with all of your heart it's him. And everyone around you believes that it's him. And your voices start cheering like after stadium when uh, a goal is scored. I don't know if you've ever been there when, when a goal is scored at the footy and there's just a thunder. You can feel it. You can hear, it's, it's like you no longer can hear voices because you just hear the one sound of praise. That's what it must have been like. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's not this like clear line because it's this thunderous line of praise as people go, we have the king we've been waiting for. Here he is. And we, we need a king. How did they know they needed a king? Well, what they were looking at is their oppression. They knew because of prophecies they were going to get a king, but what they knew, why they knew they needed one is because Rome oppressed them. They were under Roman rule. They were paying taxes to Rome. They were, they were okay as long as they did what Rome said, as long as they stayed in their lane. You and I need a king, but not because we're under Rome's rule. We need a king because we're under the oppression of sin. Every one of us. None of, no, no one in this room it doesn't have some idol of the heart. Steve led us through this wonderfully in a beautiful and, and positive way, looking at that scripture and just going, what is it in your heart that distracts you or you attach yourself to? And the idols of our heart. Maybe we think, you know, if I just had, uh, if I get that promotion, I'll be, I'll be satisfied. If I have that relationship with that person, I'll be satisfied. Maybe if I got into a relationship, uh, I'll have everything I need. Maybe if I get out of a relationship, I'll have everything I need. Maybe if I could have a child, I'll have everything I need. Maybe once the children leave home, we'll have everything we need. And we go through life working through different, different things in our hearts, believing that if, if that occurs, then we will have the freedom that we need to live the life that we believe we should. Working, Zeke, through year 10 and a half. Brutal. You have to choose the rest of your life through six subjects. What a waste of time. And yet, it's important. Decide who you are in year 10 and a half. Who knew exactly who they were at 15 years old? <laughs> Whose good idea was this? Josh did. He knew he was a powerful unit. <laughs> That's never changed. But few of us have the revelation Josh has. 
But what if there was clarity? What if I knew? If I only knew what I wanted to be, then I'd be able to make this decision and I'd have the freedom to enjoy the, the rest of high school. And so we all have these things, and we all have, you, can, you might as well call them kings. In other words, if I had this thing reigning on the, in my life, I would be free. I'd be free to live my life. I'd be free to be the person that I want to be. I'd be free to have the life that I think would satisfy me. And in our culture, we reaffirm this thing, kind of, uh, you know, live your truth and uh, be authentic with yourself and um, do what's right for you. All of that is a bunch of baloney. It falls flat. If everyone does that, society will just crumble. It doesn't satisfy anyone. We change our minds as often as we change our clothes. We don't know where we're going. We don't know exactly what we're doing. We don't know exactly what we, he, we're here for. If you said to a room of 100 people, not dissimilar to this, who of you have absolute understanding of your identity, of your meaning, of your purpose. Why you exist, why your heart beats, why your lungs breathe, why are you going to wake up tomorrow morning? What are you here for? Besides the one who'd raise his hand and say, I'll wake up to be another powerful unit again. Very few would raise their hand and say, I know. I have full understanding of meaning and purpose and value and vision. And yet, your heart will beat, your lungs will breathe, and you'll wake up again. Nothing that we can kind of grab onto can be this king, and yet we grab onto so much again and again and again. Jesus is the king that we need. Jesus is the King who has been prophesied and promised to us. Someone who knows what we are made for. Someone who knows where our lives are going. Someone who can take us beyond the sting of death and raise us to eternal life. Someone who knows intimately. The Bible says, before you, uh, before you, uh, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. I'm still trying to get to know myself. He says He knew me inside and out before I was even conceived. Because He gave me life. Isn't it wonderful to sit in front of someone that has so much clarity on something? I love it when I can take my car to the mechanic and say, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm so glad you do. I'll be back later. And I'll happily give you a little bit of money if you happily give me my car back fixed. And in a similar way, isn't it great to be able to go to God and say, I actually don't know everything about life but I'm so glad you do. And I'll happily lay my life down before you if you will happily lead me on. Jesus is the king that we need. Unfortunately for us, perhaps, <laughs> Jesus is not the king that we want. And I'll explain that. Here's the problem. The problem is a little donkey. That's the problem. I thought about using an ass joke, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> just seems inappropriate this morning. The problem is a little donkey. Have you ever gone to an animal farm and seen donkeys? Donkeys are like the least impressive horses. <laughs> right? I, I don't know if they're in the same family, but I, I think... Sorry, I think someone said no. I apologize. You obviously <laughs> love donkeys, but uh, they're not stallions. They don't puff smoke like the horses 
every horse I feel like I've ridden on has had like fire coming out of the nostrils and, and they thunder as they walk along the earth. That's like a horse. You go stand that and you respect it, right? You call the horse sir and you say, well, you go wherever you want. But when you stand before a donkey, you don't get that same sense. When you stand before a donkey, its back is about this high, a big one. It's got a cross on its back, which is interesting. I'm not going to make more of that than... I mean, I'd like to point to the cross of Jesus, but I don't think that's there. There's just a cross on its back. You see a little donkey, and Jesus says, go get not just a... Don't go get like a man-sized donkey. He says, go get a small donkey, one that no one's ever ridden yet. Why do you think no one's ever ridden it? Because it's it's a little donkey. Give it a little bit more time. It's tiny. It's still young. He says, go get, me a, go get me that one and bring it to me. And that's how I'm going to enter the city. And, and that, was, that was a normal thing to do for kings. Kings did enter cities on donkeys. They entered cities on donkeys for coronations in the Old Testament. They entered uh, cities on donkeys because they had won a war, and so they were declaring peace. In other words, kings also came on horses, stallions, fire breathing out of the nostrils. But that was to say, this is war. We're going to destroy you. So here's Jesus coming. His coronation is king. But he's declaring peace. And, and they have a sense of this. They even sing that. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, is what they say. They, have a, they know, they can see with their eyes. He's coming to bring peace. But they totally misunderstand how he's coming to bring peace. I think someone pre- preached on this recently, it may have been Jib, I can't remember exactly, but pointed to the fact that what Rome would do is, <laughs> Rome would go wherever it, was go- it wanted to go, then it would go and destroy those people, and then it would put up a flag and go, peace, we have peace, come back, tell everyone, we've made peace, you haven't made peace, you've killed everyone, there's no one left to stand against you. And that's the kind of peace we, 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 most of all, that's the kind of peace we often think about. Peace is the destruction of my enemy. Peace is my enemy disappearing, right? Peace is victory over my enemy. So if my idols are, or if the things that I think I need, or if, if those things that I'm trying to live for are success, or a relationship, or social status, or security, or comfort, or ease, or pleasure... If I think I need those things, then I think what Jesus is going to do as a king is a king who gets me those things. He's going to reign and his reigning over all things means that he can destroy anyone and anything that gets in the way of me living a fulfilled life. He's going to take my pain and replace it with joy. He's going to take that obstacle at work that's getting in the way of me and my career and he's going to remove them. I remember someone said to me once, uh, and I want to be very careful with how I tell the story. There was, uh, I'm, I'm going to, ma- just sorry, it's going to be very vague. It was a very difficult situation where, where, Christ- where a Christian was treating another Christian in an unhelpful, ungodly way. And I remember this, this person who was the victim of this kind of treatment eventually saying, they had a dream last night and they were praying this morning and they've become convinced that if this person doesn't repent, God will kill them. Now, that is well within the power of God to do. Do you see a problem there, though? The problem there is thinking Jesus is the king who's going to come and remove the thorn in my flesh. 
rather than crying out, Oh dear God, I know you have the power to do this. Please do not. This is my brother or my sister. Yes, they are causing me a, a pain, but you've experienced far worse pain, Jesus. You've known far worse than that. Please save their life. Please soften their heart. Please work with them. Please be patient. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But this kind of, oh, I think God's just going to take them out. Everything will be all right. <laughs> now, it's a quite out there story, but the reality is we all live with these. I think God will give me success. I think God will give me ease. I think God will give me comfort. I think God will give me a, a life partner. I think God will give me children. I think God will give me the job that I deeply desire and want. I think God will allow me to live in the neighborhood where I, I you know, where I, that's, that's where I want to live. And, and I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those aren't good things. God, will, God blesses us all the time with these things. But He's not the King who comes to destroy our enemies and give us a life of ease. He's a King who gives meaning to suffering, not takes it away. He's a King who um, lets us, you know, live with poverty because He gives us hope beyond it. He's a King who unites people, not divides who takes your enemy and teaches you to love them. Heaven is a place of all languages, tribes and tongues. It means it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Jesus brings us together. Jesus isn't the king that we want. Because he comes riding in on a donkey. And every day... I wake up and you wake up and we encounter life and there's difficulties in life. And when there's difficulties, we, we are tempted to cry out for stallion riding Jesus, come in and, and uh, make me victorious. Remove this thing. Rather than peace that's made another way. Peace where Romans are welcomed in as well. Peace where our enemies are invited to hear and receive the good news. Number three. Jesus is more than you imagined. So, Jesus is the king you and I need. The older you get, hopefully, the more you see that the good things in life can never be the king of your life. They can be good, but they can't reign over you. They can't give you freedom and identity and ultimate meaning. You'll find that Jesus isn't the king that you want. He will disappoint you and let you down. And my therapist said to me, if at the end of therapy you still like me, I haven't done my job. It's like, what? What, a, what have I gotten myself into? How mean are you going to be? if I use the same kind of language, then if through all your life you always like Jesus, then maybe He's not doing His job. Or maybe you're not letting Him do His job. Because what she was meaning is, Mark, I'm not here to come alongside and just be your friend. 
I'm going to push against you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask you to think about things that you may not like. I might point at things and ask you to give some insight into that, and you may not want to uh, look at them. It's like, ha, whatever. Jesus may challenge us. He may push us. He may allow things into our lives that we don't like. I thought giving my life to Jesus, I remember the person said, when you give your life to Jesus, He will make it so much better. This doesn't feel so much better. You were sold a lie. Jesus doesn't promise to make your life better. He promises to make it ultimately, extraordinarily better, 100%, but not in the way that you and I maybe translate that. Ease, comfort, pleasure, wealth, health. He's not your investor or your banker. He's our Lord and our Savior. He promises to make it qualitatively and quantitatively better. He rescues us from idolatry and sin and the suffering of death. And He raises us to life and promises us an eternity and then reminds us, don't live for this life. Live for what's beyond. And when you're living for what's beyond, then you're free to get on with this life. Because your heart's not clinging on to anything. Number three, Jesus is more than you imagined. So Jesus goes into, imagine this with me a little bit. Jesus goes into the temple. And remember, there's hundreds and thousands of people who have come. It's, it's Passover, so all these pilgrims have come back to Jerusalem. Uh, it's a festival time of the year. There's kind of two main festivals in the year where people might, uh, these sort of crowds might show up. And there's, so there's literally just when, thousands and thousands. The temple court, this outer court, could have held like 70,000 people. And that's the only place the Gentiles could go. So if you weren't a Jewish man, so, so a Jewish man, let's imagine the most holy of holies is over here, back here somewhere. And the priests could go in. So there's a, there's a priest a year who can go into the most holy of holies, so the presence of God. Then outside, uh, Jewish men can come into this, this kind of closer court. Uh, then Jewish women and, and Gentiles can come into this general court. That's as close as they can get for worship, prayer, and sacrifice forgiveness of sins. So 70,000 people can show up there, potentially, there's that much space. And what they've done is they've set up a marketplace. So can you imagine this massive court and, and there's these tables set up with uh, doves and, and little lambs and pigeons and all kinds of animals. So the chaos and the, the noise of all of this, I mean, it's not like 10, 10 or 20 or 50 pigeons. It's, you're catering for thousands of pilgrims and the reason they don't, the reason this marketplace is there, is a, it's a good reason, because you don't want to have to travel with your pigeon or your doves or your, your little lamb that you're going to sacrifice. I mean, if you're like me and, and you're traveling somewhere and you know that you can either buy that thing here and then carry it with you on the airplane and uh, through every leg, or you can, for the same price or, or a close price, just get it where you're going, you might just get it where you're going, right? So there's this kind of thought of just. Just come and get it where you're going. And uh, then they've got these money changes, Luke tells us. And so that's so that you can, the same as when we travel, you go somewhere and you take your currency and you exchange it for the currency of the place that you're going to. So that you can purchase these things that you've waited to get it where you're going. 
So it's a, it's a good system, but obviously the system's a little corrupt, just like our system is. It's not like if you go exchange money, you're not expecting to get the exact, you're expecting them to take a little bit because it's their job, right? So you understand that. You understand you lose a little bit on that. Unless you work for a bank, then you get it for free. Nice little chuckle, Chris. You obviously work for a bank. Um, and so people come and, and there's these money changes and they, they, it's their job, so they take, they take a cut, so it's not an exact exchange. But, and then there's these animal sellers who are selling for worship and, and uh, sacrifice for forgiveness. So you'd go buy a pigeon or a lamb or a dove and then you'd sacrifice it to God because there had to be a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And so you would go and you would offer this blood sacrifice to worship God as well. You could also worship God. So never mind the blood sacrifice for forgiveness. You might buy extra. You might have saved up because you also want to offer God something as worship and praise to Him. And there's a little bit of a cut off, off the top. It's a little bit more expensive than at home because of the convenience. You understand that? I understand that? You go to IGA, down the road, it's going to cost you more than Woolworths, which you have to drive to. Right? So it's a little bit more expensive. And so there's this chaos. Can you imagine this market of chaos? And Jesus comes in. Now imagine this. All this chaos. These, mar- these, these thousands of crazy animals. Feathers all over the place. And animal poo. And smells. And bells. And who knows what all else. And, and these people selling and screaming and shouting. And money changing. And all this stuff happening at scales. And you can just imagine this kind of marketplace. If you've ever been um, to some parts of the world that still have these like big outdoor markets, you, you, you can imagine what's going on there. And then Jesus comes in on his tiny little donkey that no one's ever ridden. You know, he's probably sitting a little lower than everyone's standing. And it's like they're hearing, here comes the king. Here comes the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. There's thousands of people singing. It's craziness. And they're like, who is it? We can't see him. But the crowd's like moving around. You know how you can like see a crowd moving, but you can't see the person in there? That's probably happening because Jesus is so low down on this tiny little donkey. And then he eventually gets in to, to the middle. And what does he do? He starts flipping the tables. Can you imagine? Pigeons, lambs running around, pigeons flying around, doves, I'm free, all over the place. Coins having to get picked up off the ground. Jesus is, 1 Corinthians 14 says God's not a God of chaos, but a God of order. He's talking about church meetings and how they shouldn't just be like all over the show. Well, if you were like super charismatic and you wanted to push against that, you could say, well, sometimes he is. Jesus was sometimes in the temple courts. He turned everything upside down. Maybe we should have a turn everything upside down meeting. There's chaos. But he's not doing anything wrong or illegal because they're not really supposed to be there. He's not like going into someone's home and stealing something or disrupting something. He's coming into God's temple and disturbing what doesn't belong there. Here's the point. After he's disrupted everything, Jesus is more than you can ever imagine. After he's disrupted everything, he stands in the same place of disruption because why don't they just put their tables back up and carry on the market? And he's just quickly forgotten five five minutes later. 
Because Luke tells us that he stands in that place and for days he teaches. You can't get your stuff back up because now the crowds come in and in the place where you were previously selling, Jesus is now standing in the central place of this massive temple and there's thousands of people who are hanging, Luke says, on every word. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is more than you can imagine. Jesus is, is replay, he's saying, you want, to, you want the forgiveness of God? That's what you're coming here for? To, to buy a pigeon or a lamb or a dove? To sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins? You, you want forgiveness from God? Come to me. Don't exchange your money and don't buy a pigeon. Just you come to me. You want to uh, pray to God? You've come here to pray. This, I've said that my house will be a house of prayer. That's what we do in this court. We pray here. You want to speak to God? You want fellowship with God? Don't do that through this system anymore. Now do it through me. The system has had its last day. The day is over. The marketplace is closed. It would never have relevance again in the history of humanity. Do, do you, can you understand the significance of that? That the moment Jesus turned those tables over, that ritual was over. They had been doing it for hundreds of years. It was over. And Jesus was standing there and saying, what it all pointed at is now standing here before you. You want to pray? You want to have a relationship with God? Come to me. You've come here to worship? You've come here to sacrifice to God, to worship Him, to, to lift up your arms in praise of God? Don't do that through money changing and pigeons. Do that through me. Come to me. Jesus is putting Himself at the central place and the priests hate it. The priest, it says here that the priests... They, they, they hate it. They, they, they have a murderous intent. They want to get rid of him. But they can't get rid of him because the people are hanging on his every word. Why do they want to get rid of him? Because he's totally destroyed what happens in the temple. For days, people can't sacrifice their... The whole priest, the whole uh, temple um, system is disrupted at the busiest time of the year when all people and pilgrims are supposed to come in and sacrifice for their sins and pray to God and praise Him. Jesus is standing in the way of all of that happening and saying, do that through me. And so the priests are, are upset. And let me just say this. If Jesus isn't who He says He is, then He's an egotistical maniac. How can anyone go stand in the place of worshiping God of getting forgiveness from, from God, of getting fellowship with God. How dare anyone stand in that place? Can you imagine if someone here, if we went to each other and said, don't do what you normally do to ask God for forgiveness. You come to me. Don't do what you normally do to worship God. Don't sing the song that Sam taught us this morning. Don't do that. You just come through me. I'll, I'll get you into God's presence. If you want to see God, just come here. See me. We would say, you egotistical maniac, get behind me, Satan. We might expect to see that person at Greylands fairly soon. So Jesus is either an egotistical maniac or he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Ori is God incarnate standing before them saying, everything you've waited for, the prophets that you have waited for, the word that you have waited for from God, I am the prophet, the word of God who speaks to you as God. The priests that you, the, the priests that you have looked at to get forgiveness of your sins, I am the priest who stands now and mediates for your sins. There's no other priest but me, the high priest of all. The king that you've wanted and you haven't had, I am now here. I am that king. More than you imagined. And here's a clincher as I draw this to a close. Jesus is, is um, just, let's just go back a little bit. Jesus is in the wilderness, 40 days of fasting. Recently, I've tried to do a bit of dieting myself. I tried the Jeremy diet. My inspiration is Jeremy. I couldn't cut it. Couldn't handle it. Why? I have a sinful relationship with bread. I need it. It needs me. I need it. We live with each other. But I've tried other things as well. I just say that to go 40 days of fasting (laughs) would be pretty brutal. And the devil comes to Jesus at his weakest. And the devil says to Jesus, I'll give you what you came here for. You came here for everyone. You came here to have the nations as your inheritance. That's what you came here for. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship to me. That's it. But you can have it all. That's a, you know what I imagine? I, I, I imagine maybe someone would go, I'm, what might someone say today? I'll just cross my fingers behind my back and bow down and get it all. I won't really mean it in the heart. You know, well, let's, let's put it in a current context. What if someone put a gun to your head and said, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, I'm going to shoot you. If you're not, I'm going to... Well, God knows I'm a Christian, so I can, I can tell them I'm not because they don't really matter. They're just a horrible person with a gun in their hand. God knows I... I so, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Fingers crossed. You, you know what I'm, I'm trying... It's, in other words, it's, we can get what we want. We can escape all of this stuff. So Jesus can, Jesus can have you. All he has to do is bow down to, to the devil. And the devil doesn't even say, with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, like God does. He just, uh, just do it. Probably speaks to the integrity of Jesus, that he can't do anything without all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he gets us through the cross, through crucifixion. He gets us through being murdered upon a cross, through suffering through facing the wrath of God against our sin, He's destroyed, He's put to death, and then He's raised three days later to life, and He gets, uh, he gets everything. The kingdom of, of, of heaven and earth becomes His. Jesus is given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, Jesus told, told uh, the disciples. He's been raised to life. What I'm trying to point here is... There's kind of these two options. There's a negotiation that includes your life. How much would you love someone if they negotiated with you? Hey, um, I've got this friend named Josh. He's yours, man. If I can just have ease. 
hey, Adam and Kirsty, well, they haven't really been around for six months. So, you, I mean, you can have them. They're yours. If we can just have... The devil negotiated with your life, with your eternity. If Jesus bowed to him, then you wouldn't have anything beyond death. You would have no hope, no future. That's how valuable you are outside of Jesus. I guess I want you to be a little bit angry with the devil this morning. I want you to hate him a little bit. Because he thinks nothing of you. All the temptations and, and tantalizing, you know, what about this? You can have this. Be angry. All the, the sin that, that reigns in our hearts that he works with to draw us away from God. It's just a negotiation for your, your, your harm, not your good. Jesus said Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy. So he wouldn't bow to him for a second. And instead of an easy way of negotiating... Jesus goes the hard way of death because He loves us, because He loves you. And so He's raised to life as a king, but a king who loves, not a king who takes. Jesus is more than you imagine. He, when He says, bow before me, He's not saying bow before me uh, in, a, in a mean, egotistical, I'm better than you, superior to you kind of way. He's saying bow before me. There's no one better for you to bow. We're all going to bow to something. Bow before me. I love you. I know your life. I know your future. I have an eternity for you. Give me your life. Come bring it before me. Bow here. There's compassion and kindness. Though he's the only one worthy, he's not beating us to, bow, to make us bow. He's inviting us with love. Jesus is the king we need. Jesus is not the king we want. But Jesus is more than we imagined. This morning as we come to communion, before we come forward, I'm sure, sure Chris will put up the slide just for us to reflect. But I want to go back to where Steve took us in Colossians and just ask, is there anything that you need to lay before the King of Kings? To just come in our lives, that we hold in our lives, that we just need to come before Jesus the king who didn't negotiate for our lives but got our life through death and victory over death and gives us eternal life. Is there anything we need to bring that's in our hearts or our minds or our hands or our habits that we need to come and we need to lay at his feet and say, Jesus, this is yours. Do with it as you wish. Jesus, here is, as Steve shared this morning, here is my family and longing for closeness with those whom you put me into family with. It's not an evil desire, it's a glorious desire. It's a godly desire. But I put it at your feet, Jesus. I will not make it my idol, I will not make it my king, I will not serve it. Jesus, this longing and desire and love for family is yours. You are my king. I place it before you. So maybe it's good things like that. Or maybe it's wicked or evil things. I want vengeance. I want my enemies to be destroyed. I feel superior. I feel fearful and insecure. I think if I have that, I'll, my life will be uh, the way I want it. That will give me freedom. I'll forgive that person when they, X, Y, Z. 
bring it. Lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, this is yours. Do with it as you will, King Jesus. You are my King. And I am your servant. I'm yours. Teach me, lead me, guide me. Whether you're in high school, or whether you run your business, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're single, whether you're unemployed, none of that makes any difference to Jesus. He loves you the same. And He wants to walk with you the same. And He invites you to come to Him the same. This is not the table of negotiation. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus doesn't say to us, come to me because I bowed to the devil and I got you for free. You were a freebie. You're mine now. He says, come to me. I gave my life for you. I've got forgiveness for you. I've got eternity for you. I know you. Remember that, how valuable you are to me. Come. Come. Come with your whole life and come to me.